right, turn with me over to 1 Peter. We're going to be looking at verses 20 through 25. And the title is Called in Love and Commanded to Love. And as we look through this, we're going to see the very personal love of God that he's shown towards us in calling us to be his children. But then we're also going to see that sandwiched in between the hope of our salvation, the calling of our salvation, is this commandment that we should fervently love one another. So we're going to look at it uh, verse by verse here. We begin reading verses 20 and 21. We read, He indeed, Jesus, was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So let's look at that first verse, verse 20. The big thought I want us to take away here is that salvation is for you. It's for you. I mean, yeah, we're reading here this amazing truth that comes from eternity past that God foreordained before the foundation of the world. It was, it was the plan of God that Jesus was going to come and die on the cross for our sins. That was a plan that came up before the foundation of the world. Well, what's the significance of that? It's not like the world got formed. Man began to walk and populate the planet. We went sideways and the world was like, what are we going to do now? We've already got the ball rolling. We can't stop this now. We're going to have to come up with a plan. Sorry, Jesus, you're going to have to go and die. That's not the way it worked. Before man was ever even created, knowing full well that there would be a rebellion in the garden and that condemnation would pass down to generation uh, generation after generation and that there would have to be redemption and that it would be the second person of the Godhead coming, taking on human flesh and dying on the cross for our sins. Before any of that happened, in eternity past, God said, let's still do it. Let's still create man. There was a full commitment to create man and to redeem man, knowing the cost that it would be paid. And of course, we know what that price is. We looked at it last week. But the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, that's the price that was paid. So we have this big kind of eternity past look at salvation. But then in one sentence at the end of verse 20, it says, but was manifest in the last times for you. So in the great council of God, in eternity past, they committed to this, but now it's for you. And this is the personal side of the Lord's love that's being seen. It's not just for the world, and it is for the world. It's not just for whoever will come, and it is for whoever. It's not only that God isn't willing that any should perish. It is about the any. It's all of that. It's that, that big picture. But Scripture also zeroes in on you and, and that he loves you. And so one author puts it this way. We should not view Christ's death as an isolated, distant, impersonal event. It is in the past. It is something that God did even before we were born. But in these last days, he's been made manifest for you. He loves you. And this is a message that some of you need to hear this morning because you don't feel like you're loved. You feel like there's nobody around. And maybe circumstantially in your life, that is exactly the way it is. I hope it's not. But maybe that's, that is the life that you're living. It might be how you're feeling. Maybe it's not really the reality, but it's how you feel. You feel it deeply. Well, I pray that you, whether it's a reality or just the feelings you have, that you'll be moved off of that and the reality of God's perfect love for you. 
Think about this. God was thinking of your name before the world was ever created, saying, let's create them and let's redeem them. That is God's commitment. That is God's love for you. It's almost in some ways hard to believe that it's that personal, and yet you've got the Bible that I have. You're reading it. He was manifest in these last days for you. So salvation is for you. The next thing we read in verse 21 is that Jesus is the way. It is through him that we believe in God. All right? And God raised him. God glorified him. And now we have a hope in God. So Jesus is the way. It is through Jesus that we come to know God. You can't come however you want to and know God. And there are many people that say they're worshiping God. But unless you've come through the door... And Jesus said, I am the door. If, unless you've come through that door, you are not worshiping the true and living God. And you're like, well, that seems kind of narrow. Oh, it is extremely narrow. It's probably even more narrow than you think or I'm expressing. It is very narrow. Oh, don't all roads lead to God? No. The, the very opposite. Jesus himself said, it's a narrow path that leads to salvation and few find it. So it's not a broad road that few find it. He says, no, it's a narrow path and few find the narrow path. But it's only in Jesus Christ. It is through him that we come to believe in God. And if we don't come through Jesus, then we are coming in a way that God is not established to be known. And he is the one that is reaching out to us and drawing us in. So although you know, God planned in eternity past to redeem man, we are still required today to put faith in him that we might have this realization of the eternal hope that was planned in eternity past. So yeah, it's eternity past, but it's also a thing about today. Do you believe in him? Do you believe in Jesus Christ who brings you to the Father? Because it's a faith that you have to have. It's a faith that you must confess. Nobody can confess it for you. Your mom can't confess it for you. Your grandmother, your granddad, was a pastor evangelist. He can't do it for you. You have to Put your faith and trust in these last days in Jesus Christ. And those who do are brought into this living hope, this promise of everlasting life, that our sins will be paid for. You know, but very few find this path. You, maybe you're in here today, you're like, well, I, I don't know that I'm on the path. If you don't know that you're on the path, most likely you're not on the path. And, and so we would encourage you, before this day is over, is that you would call out upon Jesus Christ. You would believe in Jesus and allow him to take the salvation that was provided, planned from eternity past, but manifest in these last days, that you would believe in that and come to have this. Now, some people are bothered by this. And they're like, well, this is just way too narrow. This truth is narrow. Listen, I, I am like so tired of that argument. Because nobody lives their life with open um, ideas for every aspect of their life. We pick and choose where we want it to be. Let me give you an example. If you work a job and you put your time in, you're going to expect to get a paycheck back. But if that corporation that you're working for has a very broad sense of truth, and for them, truth is to not give you the money, but to give somebody else the money, you're going to have a problem with it. It's like, well, wait a minute. You can't just give the money to whoever you want to. Well, broad is the path of the paycheck. I mean, we give it to whatever account we feel led to give. And this is how, no, 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 you can't do that. When you're driving through a, a, an intersection and it's a green light, you have a very narrow sense of who can be in that intersection. 
And if anybody decides to come in that intersection the opposite way, going through a red light into your green light, you feel, you use your horn, you get angry, you talk about how nobody in Virginia can drive and all the rest of things, and you have a very narrow sense. And I could, I could list a hundred things like this where we believe in narrow truth. So when it comes to the most important truth of them all, how do we get right with God and where do we live? We think that no truth matters. That doesn't make sense. So yeah, it is narrow. But here's the good news. You just found out how to get on that path. And you are being invited by God Almighty to be on that path. And if you are not on that path, it's not because he doesn't want you. It's because you will have rejected this love. Don't reject that love. Come to him. Let's, let's move on into verse 22, and particularly the first half of verse 22 is what I want to look at. It says, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. So we, he, he's coming to a point. So he's talked about this salvation and how Jesus is the way. And then he talks about how we've been purified by obeying the truth. The truth is the gospel that we just talked about. You've been purified through that. Where Peter is headed is to say, you've believed in God, you've been changed, you've been transformed, so the thing I'm about to ask you to do is completely reasonable that you can do it because you're not the same person. You're not who you were before you came to Christ. And in particular, this word here says, since you have purified, the word purified here, it's a, um, it is a, a perfect active participle, which I realize is incredibly thrilling to every one of you. Probably that's all you wanted to hear today, right? What, what, what does it mean? It's, it's quite significant. When, when we talk about a perfect verb or a participle, what you're talking about is an action that began in the past but is continuing to have an ongoing impact in the present. So physically, if I was to take a rock into a still pond and I threw that rock into the still pond, there would be that point of impact but then what's going to happen? You're going to continue to see the influence of that. You're going to see the rings going out from that. If I hit a bell, and you'll hear the, the moment of impact, but that sound is going to continue to carry through the room. So how long does it last? Does it perfect mean past action that continues for eternity? Sometimes. Sometimes it means past action that only continues up into a moment of time. Context will determine that. So what's the context here? Since you've purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, well, that's forever. We, there's a moment where we believed. Think back to that conversion moment. Where were you? Where were you when you got saved? I was six years old, um, and at First Baptist Church, Palm Springs, California, and it was revival week, because every good Baptist church has a revival week, and it was a good week. Um, Reverend Jimmy Nettles was preaching the gospel, and I got saved. I gave my life to Jesus Christ. That's when, if you will, the rock hit the water. And that's when that purification of my soul happened to make me ready to go into heaven. But there is that aspect of the purification that continues to work. We are not perfect yet, are we? It's coming. Now, we have a perfect standing before Christ, but as I live this life out, I am continuing to be changed and shaped so this is the perfect. You had something that happened in the past, but it's continuing to go on. The purification that started there is still taking place in your life. Let me read you this quote about this, uh, this topic. It says, The perfect tense 
suggests a state that began in the past at our conversion to Jesus Christ, and it is still the case as we live out our salvation each day. When we placed our faith in Christ, God the Father cleansed us of our sin. He declared us pure in his eyes. Since that time, we've begun to live out that purity or holiness in our daily behavior. We may not yet show all the characteristics of a holy people, but the process has begun and will continue. It continues as we obey the truth of the gospel and its demands. This is an important point because he's about to call them to love. And he's going to use their salvation, the moment they were purified, that they were transformed, that is continuing to happen in their life, to call them to walk in it. I love the way scripture is written. God always highlights his work, his glory, his love, and then he calls us into it. Right? He doesn't just motivate us out of fear alone. That's not how God does it. It's because of his mercies that we are called to walk and obey. And so we have this great salvation planned from eternity past through Jesus Christ. Our souls have been purified through the Spirit. And now we come to the next point, and that is going to be that we are to, to love. But I want you to, to see this, is that when we are purified, there's a transformation. You know. If you've been, if you've been saved, you know there was a transformation that happened in your life. You, you know that you used to be one way, and then Christ came in, and you began to be a different way. You used to have certain desires, but when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, those desires changed. And people around you, your family and your friends, when they saw the changes in your life, they began to think, what's up with you? You're like, I hardly even know you anymore. You're like, yeah, isn't that wonderful? And they're like, well, I don't know. Because they're uncertain of what's happening. But your life has changed. It's been transformed. Well, Paul would put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Right? Old things have passed away. The old habits. The old crankiness. The old hard-hearted, there's no way I'll ever forgive you or show kindness to you because you crossed the line with me and nobody disrespects me. Right? All those attitudes, those old things, they've all passed away and it's all become new. We've been transformed. This isn't just a conscious decision that you made that stayed inside of your own little world where it's like, I think I am going to follow the Lord now and now I am a Christian and nothing happened outside of the space where you were. That is not what took place. From eternity past, there was this plan to redeem you. There came that moment in time where you believed in Jesus and the power of God hit your life and it purified you and it transformed you. You were being acted on from the outside. And the actor was God himself, changing you and transforming you. And now you have new desires. Now you have a new way of doing it. You see, we're not just like anybody else. I didn't say we were better than anybody else. We're not like just anybody else. Because it's, we've been changed. It's all passed away. Jesus kind of put it this way. You know, what credit is it to you if you love those who love you? Anybody can do that. I mean, it's easy to love people that love you. But I say to you that you should what? Love your, your enemies. Now that's different. That's not like everybody else. And this is what Peter's talking about. We've been called to love. But our souls have been purified. We've been redeemed. And this new life 
is to be marked by a love for others, right? This purified soul, these new desires, it is to be marked by a love. I mean, Jesus was asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? He said, I tell you what, I'll give you two. The greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is what? What's the second commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. So this is right at the center of the gospel, is how we are going to be, when we are transformed and changed and purified, we're going to become people who love. 1 John 4, 11 and 12, just in case you don't believe me, says, Beloved, if God so loved us, and he did, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. You see, if you have been purified, then there is a love in you. 1 John 5, 1, whoever believes that Jesus is a Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. What does that last phrase mean? It means this, I've been saved and I love God, but I also love everybody else that he has saved. You know, it would be a really odd thing if I came up to you and said, man, we love having you at the church you know, we, Calvary Chapel Lynchburg is so blessed to have you here. You know, we talk about how blessed we are to have you here. and We love you. But you know what? We can't stand the rest of your family. I mean, your wife and your kids, they're just like, we just, so what we're wondering is, you know, we'd like you to stay, but could you have your family leave? I mean, what kind of odd request would that be? And would you feel loved? I hope you wouldn't. You, I hope you would feel incredibly offended and you would say something like this. Say, hey, time out. Don't tell me you love me and then hate those that I love the most. I, I don't feel love from you at all. This is, like, I, this is like some twisted, manipulative, strange kind of love that I want nothing to do with. Because if you love me, you're going to love the things that I love, and I love my family. In the same way, the Lord's like, don't tell me you love me and you hate my kids. Jesus, I love you, but your family is terrible. And I don't love them. He says here that we ought to not only love him who has begot us, but to love all of those that are begotten or saved by him. So this is so fundamental. 1 Thessalonians 4.9. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. What's interesting is the context of the letter to the first uh, to, uh, Thessalonians. Paul led them to the Lord, and then he was run out of the town three Sabbaths later. They didn't have a very long discipleship program. They didn't have a New Testament that they left behind. That was being written. He taught them in three weeks all that he could, and it was a lot. So when he writes to them in the very first letter, so he wants to get some more you know, discipleship going in their life, so he writes the letter, and when he writes them, he says... Well, you already know that you are to have brotherly love. To new believers, he says, I don't even need to tell you because God teaches you this. Anybody that has been transformed by the gospel, been purified in their soul, that ongoing work still happening in their life is going to know I must love those around me. And so this is the great exhortation we have. And the person who ignores the needs of others and says, I'm going to withhold my love and not show them love. Well, Scripture creates serious doubt around their faith. 1 John 3.14 says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brothers. How do I know I'm saved? Because we love one another. This is one of the great fruits 
of salvation is that there's a love. He who does not love his brother abides in death. So to not love, it calls upon the validity of your salvation. Now, I'm not saying you are or you're not, but if you are in that spot and you truly are saved, you're going to change that. You're not going to continue to walk in that kind of um, selfishness and self-focus. You're going to begin to love others. And of course, I mean, John 13, 35, many of you probably already wrote this in your notes. You've already pondered it. And Jesus said, hey, everybody's going to know you're my disciples if you love one another. That is going to be the telltale sign that this gathering here is a, is a gathering of followers of Jesus just because we love one another. And yet we hear that and we think that and we're like, man, the church has messed up a lot in this area. Because a lot of times we're not known for our love for one another. We're known for our pettiness. We're known for our unwillingness to forgive. We're, we're known for, you know, um, you know, arguing and fighting and not getting along and not being gracious. When uh, Rebecca and myself were missionaries in Australia, I'll never forget this. I was witnessing to this guy and I was inviting him out to church and quote, he says, mate, if I want to fight, I'll go to the Moose Lodge. That was his idea of what the church was all about. If I want to fight with people, I'll just go to the Moose Lodge and I'll have a beer too. I don't want to go to church and fight. And I'm like, wow. I said, so you have, and I got in the discussion, began to follow it up. So we need to be walking in love. Now you're like, well, well, I've been hurt in church. I bet you have. You know why? Because there's other human beings in this place. And scripture anticipated it, that we would have things that would offend us and that would hurt us. You know how I know the New Testament anticipates it? Because it says that we ought to suffer along with each other. Who do you suffer along with? Somebody that's really annoying you. Somebody that's really bothered you. Somebody that's crushed. So suffer along. And it also says that we ought to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us, right? So the Bible anticipates there's going to be occasion for us to suffer along. The Bible anticipates there's going to be reason and time to forgive one another. Well, you don't know what I've gone through. I don't have to know. And you don't have to know what I've gone through. Because we have something that's higher than your knowledge or my knowledge about each other's circumstances. We have the authority of God's word that says, love each other forgive each other, suffer along with each other. Here's the reality. It's like, well, you know, I, I couldn't do that. Um, and so, you know, there was a fight and this went on. And, and you know, there's this big, you know, um, drama that's taking place. And you're in the middle of it. And, and the reality is we need to be walking in grace and love with each other. So, like, well, I can't do that. They've hurt me. And here's what I'll say to you. And some of you are not going to like this. Is bigger than you. It is not all about you. The gathering of the church is not all about you. It is about who? It's about Jesus. And Jesus says that we would be known to this world by our love for one another. So therefore, I do endure hardship. I do suffer long. I do forgive. Is it easy? Oh, it's not easy. But you know what? Our souls are being purified. Is the power that worked to save me when I was six years old, is still at work in my life today at 56 years old. And so there's a gospel work that's happening in my life. It's still ongoing. And so for you to say, well, I just can't do that. Listen, listen. If you have been purified, if you've received the gospel, then maybe you on your own can't, 
But the power of the gospel working in your life absolutely can. I hope you can see this. You need to associate the same power that saved you with the same power that's working in your life today. And if that power of the God, if the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, then I think we can also say that the gospel is the power of God unto sanctification. It continues to work. And so we must forgive. Well, actually, you don't even have a, you don't even, you don't even have, and I don't have an option whether I'm going to forgive or not. That is not on the table. Jesus said, well, if you, if you want to, you can forgive. And if you don't want to, well, you know, I understand. No, he doesn't say that. We read things like, if you don't love, then death abides in you. Or Jesus said, if you don't forgive, then you're not going to be forgiven. This is what we are called to. You're like, well, yeah, but this, I, this is really hard. I don't know. Well, wait a minute. The world doesn't do that. They love those who love them. But we are called to love our Again, who? Our enemies. So if that person that you live with or somebody in your family or a good friend or somebody in this church feels more like an enemy to you than to a friend or a spouse or whatever that relationship is, you still have the commandment to love them as an enemy. We're not let off the hook. This is what we are called to and there's a high probability that as we walk in grace and love and forgiveness with that person, that that grace and that forgiveness is going to transform and change them. You know why I say that? Because that's what Jesus' love and forgiveness has done to us. And women who were married to unbelieving husbands were told that it was their good conduct that could win their husbands to salvation. So this applies in other relationships as well. In the end of verse 22, he gives us three defining aspects of Christian love. And we're going we're to move quickly now. Um, it says, in sincere love, number one, love one another fervently and with a pure heart. So Peter goes on to tell us how this love should act, actually look. And the first thing that he says, it should be sincere, meaning not feigned, not hypocritical. It should be real. It's not phony love that the world often presents because it's serving themselves. It's real and genuine. When you lean into that love, it's going to hold you up. It's going to be there for you. It's a love that declares itself real and genuine, not a love that will run at the first sign of trouble. Not something that's going to break away. Think of the cross. Think of that sincere love that Jesus showed. Secondly, it's a fervent love. It's not apathetic. It's not a love that has to be continually prodded along. This is a fervent love. Love one another fervently. You could also translate that word fervently intensely. Be intense. Have you ever met somebody that's intense about us? Like, whoa, they're intense. That's how people should talk about us. When they come in contact with us, like, man, they're really intense about loving people. Well, what does love even mean? Here's your definition. I think, I think this is a, a very workable biblical definition for love. Choosing the highest good for another person. And if you want to add something, despite the negative impacts, impact upon my life. And if you take that definition and you run it through the life of Jesus, he chose the highest good for us despite the impact upon himself. So this is what we're called to. You know, Christianity is not just some, you know, doctrine and you know, uh, you know, philosophy that has no practical output. It has the most practical output, and that is we love. 
Now, this word fervent is a word that would be used among athletes to describe their straining with all of their energy and all of their uh, effort to accomplish and be successful in the event that they're engaged in. And so, Elena, we've all watched it. We have all seen this. But imagine if it's the Olympic Games and you see somebody that comes in fourth, fifth, or sixth place. And afterwards, they were to interview this person saying, hey, you came in fourth or fifth out of the entire world. That's really respectable. How do you feel about it? Well, you know, I had a lot of energy left in the tank. I didn't really put it all out there because I didn't want to expend all of my energy. What? You're in the Olympics. I mean, what were you saving your energy for? You know, that was the time to leave it all out there. And here's the deal. When you got saved, you were registered into the Olympic event called love. And all of us, by the the word of the Lord, are to do it fervently. With all that we have, holding nothing back. Well, i got to protect myself, don't I? No, you don't. That's what the world says. i got to look out for number one. But Jesus says, I'm looking out for you. Look out for everybody else. And I think we would experience more of the love and the protection of the Lord if we had poured ourselves out more and begin to care for one another. Is the Lord ever going to say, wow. They took that love thing a little too far this week. I don't know if they have anything left for themselves. I hope they're going to be able to make it. We might be seeing them this week. I got the Lord's never going to say that. What, what is he going to say? Look how they've poured themselves out. Let's fill him or her again with the spirit. And really, you know, it is more blessed to give than receive. And you're, you're never going to be left without. What you're going to find is the more you pour yourself out, with the less possibility of physical circumstances filling you back up, that there's going to have to be an eternal filling up. There's going to have to be a, a divine rather than eternal. There's going to be a divine filling up that has to come from heaven into your life. But if you never pour yourself out, you never have to be filled up. So do it fervently and do it with pure love. That is, don't have selfish motives. And Jesus, of course, when he went to the cross had pure motives. He didn't, he didn't go to the cross for himself. And you will know how pure your motives are when you love that person fervently and sincerely and you get nothing in return. That is when our hearts are measured with how, how, how pure was my love. I think it's right and acceptable to have expectation of relationship. But when it doesn't happen, what do you do? I'm never loving them again. I'm never doing that. Oh, wait a minute. But we're to do love our enemies and to do it with a pure heart. We close there in verses 23 through 25, kind of sandwiching the gospel. Two pieces of bread, right? And the opening, foreordained before the beginning of the world, where you're purified. And then we have this kind of the middle of the sandwich where we're exhorted to love. And then the next piece of bread is back to our salvation. Back to the, the word of the Lord. And so we read about the incorruptible word. It says, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever because all flesh is as grass. So man is like grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. So he's showing that, again, I think partly that in your own natural birth, you may lack the ability 
to do what I've just been called, what I've called you to do. But you've not been born of corruptible seed only. You've been born, right? You're drawing breath. You're alive. You've been born. You have a birth date. But he says, but you need to be born again. And the second birth is the spiritual birth that happens when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that will never grow old. That will never die out. There is always going to be life. We have eternal life, and this should motivate us to walk in perfect love towards one another. Serves as a reminder that we've experienced a supernatural event in our life. You've been born again. So again, the idea is you're not just a regular old person walking planet Earth. You have been born again. You've been purified. And so what we've been called to, is it, is it high? Oh, yeah, it's high. Just like last week. The call that we had in our last study was, what did the Lord say? Is that we ought to be holy. Why? For I am holy. That's a pretty high standard too. And what is, where, how can you be more like God, or is there a way to be more like God than loving people? What does John say? God is what? God is love. So be like me. And then he goes into the discussion about love. And we are promised this enduring life, right? This life is going to pass away. But you've been given eternal life. So set your priority on the things that are really going to last. Don't set your things on the things that are going to, going to pass away. They'll be here one moment and they'll be gone another. I mentioned Palm Springs earlier. And um, we, you know, as a little boy, we lived there for a few years. And in Palm Springs, and I don't know how much of this happens anymore because it's all built up. It's a desert. And every spring there would come, I forget the name of the flowers, but there would come like all these purple flowers that would just fill like carpet. They would fill the desert landscape. And they would be there for, I mean, a week maybe. And then they would be gone and you wouldn't see them. One morning you wake up and that brown tan sand was suddenly vibrant purple. You turned around and it was gone again. And it was always amazing how quickly this came and it went. And the Lord says, that's the way your life is. But I've given you eternal life. Set your priorities on those things that are going to last forever and that are important. Are you walking in love at home? Are you walking in love at work, in church, out in our community? Have you been born again? If you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus, you're not going to have the capacity to go do what we've been called to do because you need some supernatural help. And that's what happens when you are born again. Not to mention, you have the hope of everlasting life. And then lastly, are you living with eternity in view? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your kindness, your love, your grace towards us. Lord, it's hard to imagine our names being pondered long before Genesis 1 ever even happened. And yet, this is the testimony we have from Scripture. That you ordained that Jesus would come, that he would save us. Thank you for that personal love and kindness that you showed to me, that you showed to each of us. Lord, thank you for the love that we all have experienced from other brothers and sisters in Christ. But Lord, we want to abound in that love more and more. Lord, we want anybody and everybody that walks through these doors to feel a self-sacrificing love that esteems the needs of others higher than our own. So Lord, we pray that we would do that, that we would give ourselves away, we would pour ourselves out in true Christ-like love.
If you're in that place where you need to do that, you have just been walking in selfishness, you've been walking in unforgiveness, you have been walking in bitterness, you have been walking in <clears throat> just living life with you at the center. You need to repent of that. It's like, I gotta take care of myself. You don't find that in the Bible. God says, I'm gonna take care of you. Trust God. And he says it's more blessed to give than receive. Test him. Pour yourself out and watch the blessing that begins to come into your life. If you're here and you've never been born again, you've never been saved, you never asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, ask him right now. Call upon him. Say, Lord, forgive me. I want to be a part of this family. I need this transformation. I want the hope of everlasting life. And then lastly, again, to the believer, are you living with eternity in view? Are you viewing your life like a flower that's going to be here for a moment and then the sun's going to come out and it's going to be gone and you're going to be in the presence of Jesus. You will have wanted to have lived for that which is eternal. Not for that which would have a glory for a week. I'll let you pray. Lord, we yield to you. We yield to your word. We believe that it is true, that it is holy. You've told us to abide in your word. Lord, I know that there are probably people in here that have some hurts and they're, they're just wrestling right now with this idea of forgiving and showing patience and loving, being merciful. God, I pray you will just by your Holy Spirit, you'll descend in this room and you will change our hearts. Lord, you deserve to have a church that loves each other, that everybody might look and say, oh, those are Jesus followers. Amen.